Hello and happy holidays. Uh, welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. I'm Tom Lodis. I'm a professor at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences and a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Stratton VA Medical Center in Albany, New York. I also serve as one of the scientific editors for pharmacotherapy. Uh, today, we are talking with Dr. Michael Ryback and Dr. Trang Trin about a paper they wrote along with Dr. Jordan Smith entitled Parental Fosfomycin for the Treatment of Multidrug-Resistant Bacterial Infections, the Rise of the Epoxide. Uh, this paper appeared in the November 2019 issue of Pharmacotherapy. Uh, Dr. Ryback is, is well known to the audience series, Professor of Pharmacy at the Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Uh, Dr. Trin is an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacy uh, Medical Outcome Center at the University of California, San Francisco School of Pharmacy. Mike and Trang, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. So, so Mike, I'll start off with a question for you. I, I know um, you have a lot of experience with fosfomycin um, in your lab and in clinical practice. Uh, for the audience, if you can just provide a general overview of the drug, its chemical structure, mechanism of action, spectrum of activity, I think that's a good way to begin the podcast. Sure, Tom. Actually, fosfomycin uh, is a very interesting antibiotic. It was originally named fosfonomycin. It's actually fairly old, Tom. It was discovered in Spain in 1969. Uh, but there's been a lot of renewed interest because of the increased prevalence of MDR pathogens now. Chemically, it is phosphonic acid derivative uh, with an extremely low molecular weight and demonstrates almost no protein binding. The chemical structure contains a three-member epoxide ring, which makes it unique among other antibiotics. In fact, it is chemically unrelated to any other known antibacterial agent. Regarding its activity, phosphomycin is bactericidal antibiotic and inhibits cell wall synthesis for both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, but it does it at a very early stage in cell wall building. It interferes with phosphoenerol pyruvate synthetase, which is a mouthful, but that essentially inhibits the synthesis of peptinoglycan, which of course you know is the building blocks of the cell wall. Of interest, and something you may get into later, is that this unique mechanism of action may actually be beneficial for providing synergy with other antibiotics, including the beta-lactams, aminoglycosides, and fluoroquinolones, and even drugs like daptomycin. Regarding its spectrum of activity, thosomycin is active against methicillin-susceptible and resistant Staphylococcus aureus. It's active against penicillin and cephalosporin-resistant streptococcus pneumoniae and even enterococci, including vancomycin-resistant strains. It also has very good activity against gram-negative bacteria like E. coli and Proteus mirabilis, Klebsiella pneumoniae, the Enterobacter species, Serratia marsens, to name a few, Neisseria meningitidis, Shigella, and Salmonella. However, Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Acinetobacter bomini activity is poor. Um, compared to these other uh, bacterial pathogens. Although we can get at some of those organisms when uh, phosphomycin is used in combination. Another interesting point about phosphomycin, it, it, it has some activity against anaerobes, but not against Bacteroides fragilis. Those are usually resistant to phosphomycin. Very next one. Well, Mike, thank you for that overview. Um, I think the other thing that always comes up, and I think it causes a lot of confusion, is 
many of us have experienced the United States with oral fosfomycin, um, but uh, IV dosing is different. So I think probably one of the things that, if you could, if you just comment on the differences in dosing, and in particular, some of the major pharmacokinetic attributes of IV fosfomycin. Sure. We've actually been waiting a long time to get the IV formulation, as you know, Tom, in the United States, because it's been around for quite a long time. We've had, as you mentioned, the oral formulation. There are actually two oral uh, preparations. There's phosphomycin tromethamine, which is a soluble salt, uh, and there's also phosphomycin calcium. Phosphomycin tromethamine is actually the preferred oral formulation because it has the best bioavailability. The intravenous form uh, that we finally have now, the intravenous preparation is phosphomycin disodium. Now you asked a little bit about the pharmacokinetic attributes about IV phosphomycin. The major attributes about IV formulations of phosphomycin is just that we get higher uh, achievable serum concentrations, way higher than the oral formulation. And a number of preparations uh, and dosages have been studied, actually, in uh, volunteers and in clinical trials. And, and I don't know if we'll get into this later with Trang uh, talking about that. But both one and eight grams have been evaluated in volunteers. And uh, the one gram has reached uh, peak concentrations of 45. And AUC is over 100, like 117 the half-life being about 2.4 hours. The 8-gram dose, however, achieves concentrations nearly 400, 700, 370 milligrams per liter, I should say, and area underneath the curves that exceed 1,000. And the half-life is approximately the same, 2.4 to 2.8. Uh, of note, higher Cmax and AUCs have been achieved during the clinical evaluation of phosphomycin. Uh, all of these studies combined have indicated that phosphomycin does follow a proportionate linear pharmacokinetics, which we'd like to hear, because as you give a bigger dose, you get a bigger pop in the serum concentration than the tissue concentrations, but one that you would expect. By the way, the oral 3-gram equivalent dose uh, achieves about 53% of a 1-gram intravenous dose, so just to give you that perspective. Phosphomycin elimination occurs by glomerular filtration. And uh, one other note, to phosphomycin is eliminated, just so in case you wanted to ask about this, during hemodialysis. And they do recommend that you give a two-gram dose after each uh, dialysis sessions when patients are getting intermittent dialysis, such as every 48 hours. Okay, great. You know, I think one thing I always think about is, is pharmacokinetics. I mean, to put it in, in proper perspective, uh, what's its PKPD target? And, um, you know, what is it? Does it have varying targets against different pathogens? Yeah. So, Tom, I don't think we really know what the best PKPD target is for phosphomycin. That being said, there are a number of studies that have used in vitro models, such as, you know, the typical pharmacokinetic dynamic hollow fiber model. They've examined organisms like E. coli and Pseudomonas and Klebsiella, and they have identified. Uh, what seems to work best is the area underneath the curve divided by the MIC. And of course, as you might expect, the higher the MIC, the more area underneath the curve we have to achieve to get an equivalent outcome. Now, there is an interesting thing about phosphomycin. You probably heard this about other antibiotics. It has a post-antibiotic effect, and that enables us to increase the dosing interval, especially when it's a prolonged effect. And phosphomycin has demonstrated a, a prolonged PA up to five hours for a number of different pathogens. So to answer your question, 
in a roundabout way, we're not really sure what exactly the target is, but we think it's the AUC divided by the MIC. All right, great, thanks. So Mike, the one thing that's been coming up a lot at our VA is, uh, you know, we're having high rates of fluoroquinolone and Bactrim resistance among our E. coli isolates. And there's been increasing number of requests for susceptibility testing with fosfomycin. Uh, if you can comment on the process of susceptibility testing and, and some of the challenges associated um, with fosfomycin, I, I'd be most appreciative. Sure. The number of methods are available for susceptibility testing of fosfomycin. The, the true easy methods are the auger dilution method, maybe the disk diffusion method. Most of the audience is probably familiar with those methodologies. Disk diffusion has been around for a long time. It's also known as Kirby-Bauer methodologies. And uh, those are easy and they're kind of done in auger and you can measure susceptibility zones. And uh, again, uh, straightforward. The one that is um, challenging is the broth microdilution methodology. And you need to add specifically uh, to the broth like 25 micrograms per ml of glucose 6-phosphate because that's needed to induce the pathway by which phosphomycin is active. So without that additive of glucose 6-phosphate, you're not going to get good susceptibility um, readings from phosphomycin. But you should know that there are some controversies about microdilution, and, and there are people out in the uh, the clinical microbiology arena, so to speak, that uh, indicate that you probably shouldn't use this because it has highly variable results. So it's tricky. It's not easy to do. Uh, not every laboratory probably is equipped to do uh, microbroth dilution methods, but the auger methods and the distribution methods are pretty true and standardized. Okay, agreed. And, and, and that's what we're moving towards in our institution as well. Uh, so, Mike, you know, you provide us a, a very good overview of its coverage, you know, against key both gram-positive and gram-negative organisms. And I think the one thing that always comes up with a new drug is what is the unmet need? And we think about the unmet need right now, it's, you know, carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae, uh, carbapenem-resistant acetobacter, and, and multidrug-resistant pseudomonas. So, we recognize, or I recognize, fosfomycin has good activity against all these bugs, uh, but how does it work when one of these resistant phenotypes is present? Yeah, so, well, let's just talk a little bit about resistance then, how common it really is. I guess we can get into that. I mean, phosphomycin resistance uh, has been observed both in vitro and in clinical studies as well. So we see that in our patients. There is both intrinsic resistance to phosphomycin. That means it's not acquired resistance. It's usually there from the get-go. Uh, and that's usually related to an organism that just has an alternative peptidoglycan pathway. So it can kind of skirt around phosphomycin's mechanism by just using a different pathway to, to make its building blocks. Or it might be just a, a MUR-A mutation. So MUR-A is needed uh, to catalyze the steps for peptidoglycan synthesis. So you need that, and that's a target for phosphomycin activity. Phosphomycin resistance can be acquired, though. Uh, it could be through a chromosomal or a plasmid-mediated mutation. Uh, these are less commonly reported. They usually involve MUR-A again, or possibly transporter genes like GLPT or UHPT. Now, what's the consequence of those transporter genes? Well, if there's mutations in those genes, it basically blocks the uptake of phosphomycin. So that's a problem for this the drug when those are employed. 
There are also phosphomycin modifying enzymes. Maybe you've heard about those. Phos A is very common. We see that in Pseudomonas, by the way, um, commonly. Uh, there's Phos B and there's Phos X. And so what are these? Well, they can inactivate phosphomycin by catalyzing its con conjugation with glutathione, or they can modify the epoxide ring. Remember, we started out this conversation about the epoxide ring and how important that is to the activity of phosphomycin. So if you modify that, you basically render phosphomycin ineffective. Now, the other interesting thing about resistance to phosphomycin is it can come on plasmids. And plasmids, unfortunately, not only carry phosphomycin resistance, but they can also carry with it antibiotic-resistant genes like for beta-lactamases, like the ESBLs, the KPCs, you remember the AMPCs, the New Delis, and the OXAs, which we worry about keep us up at night, but also resistance to aminoglycosides and even drugs like fluoroquinolones. So overall, uh, phosphomycin does have activity against CRE, for example, ESBL-producing organism, probably less reliable activity on its own against acinetobacter and pseudomonas. Um, but maybe a little bit later on, we could talk about there are some data that if you combine phosphomycin with other agents, you may be able to get you may be able to get after some of these more resistant pathogens. Okay, so so I guess the question always comes up, Mike, is clearly you know when we think about phosphomycin, you know we should be doing susceptibility testing, and I, I guess there's two things that come up. How common is is resistant present on the baseline isolate? And because of its low um, mutational frequency to resistance, how often do, should we expect it to occur during therapy? Well, again, probably going to be a drug used clinically, mostly in combination. If we're talking about the urinary tract, we're going to get high concentrations in the urine, and you can use it at, against a single pathogen uh, in that arena without probably much difficulty. You probably don't need to add anything. But when we're going after some of the organisms we've just been talking about, you're probably going to have to add it with another compound just to keep the emergence of resistance during therapy uh, at bay. And so uh, the answer is that we're probably going to use it in combination most, most of the time when we're using it systemically against some of the pathogens that we were just talking about. All right. Well, thank you.